0: Welcome to the LDA podcast, a series dedicated to improving the lives and education of all learners. In this episode, we talk with Director of Counseling Services Dr. Eileen Dion and Counseling Team Leader Laura Polvinen. Both work at Landmark School in Beverly, Massachusetts, a school dedicated to helping students from second to twelfth grade who have language-based learning disabilities and executive function disorder.
1: Hello everyone, I'm here with Dr. Ellen Dion, the Director of Counseling Services at Landmark School in Beverly, Mass, and Laura Polvinen, the Licensed Social Worker and Counseling Team Leader at Landmark School. They both have an expertise in recognizing social-emotional challenges seen in students with language-based learning disabilities. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dion and Ms. Polvinen.
2: Thank you for having us. Exactly.
1: So what are some common social-emotional struggles you notice in individuals with language-based learning disabilities?
2: So the way we think about it is that uh, there's like two categories. One is like they're struggling with uh, their sense of self as a learner and -hmm. their sense of self as someone who who can relate with others. So Mm -hmm. the emotional struggles very often have one or both of those components. Um, More specifically, we see um, what we call PTSD-like symptoms, so post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, Not that they were threatened with violence or anything of the sort, but it's because um, very often in in their schooling experiences, their sense of self as a capable learner was really um, affected And um, so uh, they might find themselves, a teacher may use an expression that seems, you know, why don't you try harder, for instance, is a famous one, and for them it may have a terrible impact. They may get flooded with memories uh, of uh, similar uh, expressions that were used, doubting that they are trying their best uh, and and, and bringing up all sorts of uh, memories about what has happened before to, Mm -hmm. to them and so that's accompanied very often by strong physiological responses and then very often it, 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 it has, there's this wanting to avoid the task at all costs because who wants to face something that's terrible and also um, very often they're going to be what we notice is what we call vigilance. they're going to be on the lookout for those kinds of words not purposefully but automatically because when you've been injured in some ways you kind of expect it or you're uh, you, you worry that it will happen, so we see a lot of those behaviors, and that really a lot of those uh, is, that can get in their way of their be, being able to attend to the task at hand, obviously. Um, we also obviously see uh, lots of kids who've got you know the rates of ADHD are some, some is higher than in the general population. That means that it affects their attention for some of the, many of those students. They can be hyperactive quite impulsive and so all of that also gets in the way of the the learning uh something that a lot of people don't know sometimes it may affect the ability to initiate a task actually because we think about them as being impulsive so they're going to but some of them it's the opposite it affects their ability to start a task Um, the rates of anxiety and depression are higher now we're not saying that those kids have full-blown diagnoses. But they tend to worry more about their ability to do, to be successful, to make friends, and so and then they also get more easily discouraged, again because of the accumulated number of failures. So we see that, and sometimes it's accompanied by um, also what we see in that populations are higher rates of suicidal ideation or attempts. Now we like to remind people that we are saying those are all risk factors that are present. But that respond very well. To, they can very well respond to the right intervention, and by that we mean both the academic intervention. That if they feel that they're learning, they're being taught the way they need to be taught, they then obviously they get more encouraged, and they, we can see a lot of those elements kind of be mitigated. Also, we can often have direct um, intervention to help them figure out uh, strategies to cope with their anxiety when they're looking at a task and they feel overwhelmed. What can you do or say to yourself or how can you manage your anxiety to be able to attend to the task, right? So sometimes we work directly with the the emotional component. So all of that, that's about the learning because all of that affects their working memory, it affects their attention and their uh, uh, executive function and so forth. But then there's also, I don't know if you want to talk about the issue of them uh, feeling like they're able to connect with other kids because that's such an important piece of it all.
3: Sure. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of the emotional piece, you know, such an important part of being human is connecting to other people socially and feeling accepted and loved. Mm -hmm. And we know that students with language-based learning disabilities have different um, challenges in terms of social needs and even a higher rate of you know potentially being isolated or bullied, um, and that can present a larger social and emotional need with regard to anxiety in social situations or even depression. Um, we know that students with LBLD have um, some challenges sometimes around social interaction overall, whether it be pacing of conversation or social pragmatics, which is like all the aspects of a social interaction besides the words, tone of voice, <laughs> body language, um, Again, the pacing, staying on topic, those pieces. And so when students have difficulties, not only in language-based learning disabilities, areas affected by school, but in social interactions, that can have a real effect on their self-esteem and kind of lead more to some of those negative emotional feelings about themselves, which then cycle back and affect future social interactions or their learning, and it's kind of a cycle in that sense.
0: So the cycle
1: really seems to be self-confidence, social-emotional, and feeling like community and part of something, and then academics. Where do you start as a teacher to even target? Absolutely. Is there one area to start, yeah. or do you try and do it all at once? Or
3: I think, you know, ideally of course doing it all at once, but knowing we're only human, I think the biggest piece is to have students feel safe, and I think good teachers want students to feel safe in their classroom, and when they create that environment where students feel like they're seen um, and that a teacher values who they are, that enables them to feel more comfortable to reveal whatever it is um, whether it be their, their challenge in terms of academics or that social piece. I think we have kids who have um, challenges with social pragmatics but who are able to really do well in a classroom because they're given what they need academically and they're made to feel part of a community even if they don't relate the way many of the other kids in their class do. And so I think teachers who foster that sense of you are part of this community and I want to know about you and I want to foster those strengths that you have and nurture you as a learner and address the challenges you have and that there's nothing wrong with you because you have challenges helps take care of that emotional piece and then they get more out of them academically. right? A a student who feels emotionally safe is going to take more risks um, and students who take more risks are going to learn more.
2: What we find as a way to kind of develop that trust uh, between the student and the teacher is also if the teacher can find a way to have uh, for the students to understand what their learning profile is. Sometimes the teacher if it's a a special education teacher can understand the reports and can explain. Sometimes this could be a psychologist at the school or it could be, you know, sometimes you need to involve another professional. But the idea is for the kid to really understand what's going on. Um, let's face it, language-based learning disabilities, it's complicated enough because it's, it's a, a wide range of possibilities in the menu of learning disabilities, and not all of them have the same. As we know, some of them struggle with um, dyslexia and have no trouble with expressive or receptive oral uh, information. So it's confusing for the kids themselves. And once they understand what it is that they're struggling with, that there's nothing, that their, their brain kind of process information differently or process the written word differently, but that they can learn. They just need to learn differently. That makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And already there's a sense of trust because this this adult gets me. Mm -hmm. And also, it's this beginning of a collaboration between the kid and the adult, right? Because it's not just that we're doing something to you. You get it so that you can help us kind of teach you and we're going to work on that together. And the element that gets added to that is uh, letting them know that there are millions of other kids like them. Mm-hmm. So that, again, gives them hope. And uh, you know, and we can go on about the actors who, you know, but who, are dyslex- who have dyslexia and so forth and have managed and people who have been successful in the different fields. But again, it's an, an idea of giving them a different perspective, instead of, I'm not able to learn. I think I learn differently. I think, you know, and, 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 and there is hope for me. And then in itself creates quite a different environment in which to teach. And then you know, there's obviously a number of specific strategies, but what we're talking about is creating a structure and a container in which, you know, as I said, it's different the, the way that the teaching occurs.
3: We have a student who said, in her advice to teachers, she said, remember, they're not just brains in those seats. They're people in bodies with emotions and experiences. And I think that's really like the perfect message to teachers, is these are complex individuals in the seats in your chairs and bringing lots of different pieces to the table.
1: It totally captures that with what the student said. (laughs) Yes. So it sounds like you're very much about empowering students. Is there a certain age, developmental level, where students may understand their disability a little better or? I
3: would say students as young as second grade when most students get diagnosed can start to understand. Many of our students will say they knew in kindergarten that they were different because everyone else knew their alphabet and they didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, We know a number of twins who have a reading challenge or a language-based learning disability and their twin did not. Um, So I think even as early as early elementary school, you can explain to students that their brain learns differently. Mm -hmm. Um, We really do our best to explain that it's not about intelligence, it's not about your ability to think and process, it's about your ability to use and manipulate language as it works in your brain. Um, Obviously, you can be more detailed with an older student to help them understand the intricacies of their profile, but oftentimes younger kids just want to know that, yes, they are feeling different, and that's true, they are different. Um, but they're not different from everyone else, it's not their fault, and there are ways to help their skills that they can learn to lead the kind of lives they hope for. Because we know that students even as little as six and seven have hopes and dreams of what their lives will turn out to be.
2: Right, and, and what I like about this way of thinking about it is that it's like any of the big topics in life. In kids, we know, they could be three or four years old and they wonder about death, right? They wonder about big topics. Let alone sexuality and, and all of this. But, um, and so, and what do we say? We say at different ages, they can process it, but they, they process it for that period of life. Mm-hmm. And then maybe when they go to middle schools, uh, they, then they have to rethink about it. What does that mean? And once they go to high school, and then when they're thinking about college, each time they're going to be reworking the meaning of it all. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's part of their life project because for a lot of them it's not going to disappear, but they have to figure out a way around it, on top of it, through it, or whatever, right? And yes. so, um, so it's a life project. Like a lot of us have our own little ones mm-hmm. too. Yes, we all have our life we projects that, that we're all still working. Great on. Yes. yes,
1: exactly. So you talked about kind of empowering students and helping them um, understand their disability, and then moving on to developing social-emotional competencies, how, what are some interventions that teachers can use in the classroom to really um, help students progress? So I think as Elaine
3: said, you know, helping teachers to know what the learning challenges and profiles are of their students would be really helpful because that gives a starting point, Mm -hmm. um, especially if a student feels understood in that way, like the teacher knows what's going on with me. Um, You know, one of the big interventions we suggest is putting an agenda on the board. Uh, That only not only helps their language-based learning disability, but any sense of anxiety or worry about what might happen in class is going to be diminished by knowing the plan Mm -hmm. and kind of what they can project for the next 45 minutes of class, let's say, or hour and a half. Mm -hmm. It kind of gives them, students, the emotional power to Think about how they're going to sustain the energy that they need for that class period and to understand that the teacher's in control and kind of put that worry maybe at ease a little bit so i would say that's a big piece Um, in general following the same routine having boundaries and structure um, making the expectations explicit what is it that the teacher expects from that class from the students Um, from little things like how homework is turned in to are there jobs in class, especially for younger kids, or what is the expectation if you come in late to class because we find that students with LBLD have the opportunity to worry about all the little pieces if they don't know what's happening Um, and definitely in terms of avoidance because work can be really challenging we'll find any and every possible way to avoid um, so that they don't have to do a really challenging task I think additionally um, giving structured choices where students feel like they have an option of what they can do in terms of, okay, if you don't do this worksheet here in class, it will be for homework. Or, I'm asking you to do a sentence summary of this book in a small paragraph form and draw a picture. You can draw the picture first or write the paragraph first. So you're not giving students an out, but you're giving them some sense of control and choice in it. Um, really helps to hold them accountable and also, I think, just guide your expectations of students. What else can you think of? There's lots of. People. Well, there's a lot. We've had that. That's
2: part of the uh, longer presentation. I, I guess uh, keeping in mind, uh, again, uh, not all of the students with language-based learning disability uh, struggle with um, expression and, and reception of language. However, a, a significant number of them, uh, they struggle with that. Um, so one of the things is to be aware of that, so that to kind of slow your speech down, mm-hmm. and 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 also um, kind of make sure, do not assume, uh, so that make sure that they get what you said, and that you get what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So if so, obviously that would be in a smaller, you know, if you're dealing about in, on, with an incident, for instance, or explaining something. So you know, to some very. How often a day do we say, um, just, I just want to make sure, I'm gonna, this is what I hear you say to me, and then you give it back to them mm-hmm. so that they can confirm or not, or correct? The same way is, could you repeat to me what I told you? Mm-hmm. So that, uh, or for a small group of, you know, kind of, you can say, you, uh, you can use a kid you know will know, kind of, can you repeat for everybody what the homework will be tonight? Or you can have a, a round-robin kind of thing. We know that an anxious kid, for instance, if they know when it will come, they get themselves ready, right mm-hmm. so um, so on Monday, maybe it's this one, and on Tuesday it's going to be this one who's, who's going to have to tell everybody what it is that they have to do for homework tonight. Mm-hmm. So both the idea of being able to plan that but we don't excuse it, they will do it for the other ones, but also to make sure that everybody hears you know so we don't assume in our interactions with students. Mm -hmm. It's really important to be mindful of the words you use. Again, you know, the the big one that we hear a lot from the students is they always think I don't work hard enough. They assume I'm, you know, try harder, they say, or if you just applied yourself. So be mindful that what seems like a small word could be, could really kind of cause quite a bit of emotional injury. Mm like I had this kid who said, you know, I, I, list, I, I, I work on my spelling test every night for like a long time, and I memorize it the best I can, and at the end of the week when we have the test, I get the worst score than everybody, even though some of my friends, they only took five minutes to look at it. And then, so it, can you imagine this kid who still is not giving up, and then if he's told, well, if you had just studied harder. It's it, it's it's an injury. It's also infuriating. You, you know that the unfairness of it makes them so angry. So be mindful of the words you use. Um, same thing with sarcasms. Sometimes we mean it. It's a joke, you know. And uh, some, you know, I you know I think it's a great joke, but some of those kids don't understand sarcasm. So they may think you mean it literally, and then again they're gonna oh my god, you know. So. If you don't know for sure that it's a, that the kid can take the sarcasm, you know, sometimes I will, you know, kind of make, because sometimes we don't know. The only way is to try it. Sometimes I will try it, and I say, you know, it's a joke, right? <laughs> and then when I get this, like, Crickets. kind of, yeah, and then I'm thinking, okay, he did not know. Now he knows, but in the future, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Or, you know, so, so th- those are all kind of, it seems like nothing, but, you know, it, every, intera- every day is built of it, thousands of interactions, right? So that, that uh, the, the, the way that we communicate makes a big difference.
3: There's another piece I think many skilled teachers do anyway, um, but the more they can do it, the more helpful, which is kind of anticipating what students' brains are thinking, mm-hmm. um, especially with regard to LBLD. If you give a written assignment or a reading assignment for in-class and a student sees a page full of words, Saying out loud, okay, I know what you're thinking, your brain is thinking like, oh my gosh, there's so many words, what am I going to do with this? I think that helps mitigate the social-emotional challenges right in the moment, um, because you're kind of predicting what their brain is saying, Mm -hmm. and you're helping to regulate for them. So where they might not have the skills, given how overwhelmed they are with feelings, to say, it's okay, the teacher's going to help me through this. They know that they're not going to give something that's too challenging for me. If a teacher can put that up front and say, "Like, I know what you're thinking. I gave you a three-page summary for homework, and you're thinking you can't do this, but you can. You're going to use the template that we did, and then we're going to have a check-in. I think that sort of talking through the process is both breaking it down, which is important, um, but it's also kind of conveying your level of understanding of their needs and their minds.
1: So we hear a lot about homeschool partnerships, and we've talked a lot about the school front. Um, Sometimes when students come home is when they completely shut down because they've held it together all day at school. So what advice do you have for parents who are seeing maybe the meltdown or the frustrations of school come out in the home environment? I mean, besides snacks? Yes. Besides <laughs> <laughs> snacks and just a little bit of downtime for yes, themselves. Yes, yes, yes.
2: And it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge at times you know, with some of those ADHD kids when you want them to do the work before the medication gets out of their system, so you would mm-hmm. want to give them some downtime, but not too much because then then it gets worse and worse because then mm-hmm. they have even less ability to… Uh...
3: I think the same of understanding your profile goes for families. I think sometimes we think LBLD is contained in the school day and it's knowing it's not, and families really understand the intricacies of, okay, slow down your speech when you're talking to your student or know that they might not be responding to you because they're thinking of the right words. Oftentimes we have students who say, I just agree with my parents because it's easier than trying to think of what to say. So they kind of put words in their mouths, which are well-intentioned, but I think for students they have processed all day long and Mm -hmm. it's hard for them to think and talk more about what is happening either in their school day or to explain a piece of homework to their parent um, than to just do it. And so I think it's understanding really if parents can take a class on the intricacies of LBLD, um, or understand the anxiety that might go along with it. We always say to parents, it shouldn't be surprising that emotional challenges go in tandem with LBLD, because if we as adults, had to do something that we hated most. Let's see. Six hours a day, our taxes, taxes. For six hours a day. Like, I'd be pretty cranky and worried too. Mm-hmm. Um, and helping parents to understand that I think it's that perspective taking piece um, that's really valuable at home. And I think it's the similar concrete strategies. If you have a plan, share it with your child. If you're having a certain expectation, uh, communicate that. Give them kind of markers for how the time is gonna go. So many of our students with LBLD have significant executive function challenges, so understand that that's going to pop up constantly. If you ask your child to clean their room, they don't know the steps. You have to walk it through for them or don't get frustrated when they can't pack their gym bag. They don't, they don't know what goes in the gym bag for soccer, even though they've worn cleats and shin guards and a uniform every day for the past two years. It's really having to kind of map that out and give students the tools to be successful.
2: What, what i like in general also is um to think about it at any age as a collaboration again so when you say develop kind of you know make the expectations clear clear it's so nice when you <clears throat> you can build it together i mean obviously there are no nego- there are some non-negotiables you're going to have to do your homework mm-hmm. so how about if we figure out this year you're now a fourth grader so do you have a good place to do your work is it you know is it better when you're in the kitchen is it better when you're in your bedroom and because there are different answers to that so you want to do it in your bedroom this year okay well we're going to need to see if it works so how will we know that it works and so kind of do it with them Mm -hmm. so that it makes again the difference between empowering and it's you know when you are part of the negotiations you you are less likely to see control struggles, um, which are obviously a beautiful way to avoid. I, I will forever remember this adolescence, she would pick a fight. She was not LBL, she would just pick these incredible fights with her parents, like the night before the exam. And then after that, she'd say, well, for sure if I flunk my test tomorrow, we'll know why. You know, look what you put me through. And then she'd go. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Well done. Yeah. So, yeah, one wants to avoid those struggles as much because it's very often an avoidance techniques anyway, besides being exhausting for everybody. But you're more likely to do that when you, you negotiate around the negotiables. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that would be so. And then I think
3: decide what the non-negotiables are because there's that dance of like these things are right.
2: negotiable. Mm-hmm.
3: We're not negotiating on them ever. And here are the negotiables. What am I? You know, it's
2: yeah, yeah. Raw
1: screen,
3: collaborative, proactive. Solutions. Exactly, the three baskets
2: kind of thing. Yes,
3: yes. yes. Exactly.
1: So, do you have any final thoughts to leave us with, or um, pieces of advice, resources for those that want more information on this topic?
3: Sure. We are a big fan of um, Lynn Lyons, who works specifically on anxiety work, and mm-hmm. really. Um, approaches anxiety much like approaching LBLD, where you want to teach skills. It's not about accommodating for the anxiety or the worry, it's about teaching skills to manage it because worry is a human part of existence um, and much like we would never say to students you don't need to learn to read, uh, you need to learn to manage your anxiety. We're not going to avoid situations that cause worry or anxiety. So I think she's an excellent resource.
2: And um, Wagner was listening? Yep. yep. And. Wagner, with that
3: sort of yes. thing, yeah. This also talks about kind of going over the worry hill. And yes. oftentimes yes. it's this feeling like you don't want to go over the hill, it's going to be awful, but once you start kind of getting to the top and going over, you realize you did it. Mm-hmm. And for so many students, their heels dig in when they're going up that hill, um, and they don't want to go, but it makes the hill higher and higher the more you yeah. resist mm-hmm. going through whatever challenging situation it is. Mm-hmm. I think too, so often we have families who are very worried about the outcomes A, for a student with LBLD, but definitely one who has significant social-emotional symptoms and trying to say that, you know, with intervention things really do get better. Um, And our students' biggest advice is don't give up. Don't give up even when you think you need to, even when you think nothing is possible. Um, That with the right supports, these kids are so resilient um, and typically much better problem solvers and perseverers than their typically learning peers. Um, and so I think when students know that and are exposed to famous people with language-based learning disabilities or people in their own lives who they don't know have LBLD um, but are doing amazing things, it's really encouraging and helpful to know kind of what life will be like um, moving through.
1: Thank you, Ellen and Laura. I appreciate your time. I know that you're very busy people, so we we appreciate all you've had to share with us today. Thank you. Well,
2: thank thank you. you for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to the LDA Podcast. Our theme music is Little Idea by Scott Holmes. This series is made possible by the Learning Disabilities Foundation of America. In our next episode, we talk to Lynn McMurray and Julia Rivera from the North Texas FASD Network, a support group for those with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, to talk about the connection between learning disabilities and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. For more resources from LDA, visit ldaamerica.org.